Hello, everyone. Welcome to another special episode of the Geek Warning Podcast brought to you by the Escape Collective. It's our first after the new year, after a little break here, actually. Uh, we are sticking with a fan favorite theme again this week with another episode of Ask a Wrench, where we field a whole bunch of tech and maintenance questions from our Escape Collective members and put them in front of our panel of experts for answers. So with me here today in Boulder, Colorado, is Zach Edwards, owner and operator of Service Shop, the Boulder Group Petto, and a former pro race mechanic. Hi, Zach. Hello. Zach, I was going to list off a bunch of people that you've worked for on the pro <laughs> race team, but the list ended up being a little bit long, so I'm not, I'm not going to bother. Well, that's fine. <laughs> still still dabbles in the pro race mechanic, don't you, Zach? Or Just is on it... occasion, mainly yeah. for my wife. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The other voice you're hearing there, we've also got on today's panel, Tool Aficionado, and my fellow tech editor here at Escape Collective, Dave Rome. Hi, Dave. Hello. Dave, how are things in Sydney right now? Yeah, good. Good. Uh, I just got a new impact wrench, so I'm very happy. <laughs> <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> All three of us, I think it's safe to say, have spent way too many years working as traditional bike shop mechanics. Uh, I think we calculated more than 50 years between the three of us, actually. So hopefully you know, we know what we're talking about here. Uh, Zach, I am curious, though. How would you say the role of a race mechanic differs from a shop mechanic? And maybe how might those two experiences complement each other? Uh, I mean, I'd say, yeah, that's a very loaded question. Um, <laughs> I mean, the race mechanic is you're generally working on one bike if you're working for a single rider, like for off-road disciplines, or one kind of bike, like one type of bike for a, a team of riders. So it's a lot more of just like washing and making sure things are running fresh for the next day's race, and a lot more replacing parts rather than necessarily problem solving more like maintenance and replacing as opposed to actual fixing correct yeah hmm. safe yeah. or say all right that's fair to say uh and would you say those those two roles kind of work together like i don't know would you say that they make you kind of a more complete mechanic i would say so i think on on the race side you have to be like pretty good under pressure particularly like in race uh issues whether it's like bike swaps in a cross race or wheel changes in a in a road race or something like that, like working well under pressure and being able to get the job done without really losing it or being stressed or whatever, that benefits a, a shop because you're also working in a high-paced environment and just trying to get as much stuff done in a day as you can. Both of you, bo both of those roles potentially have people yelling at you? Potentially, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Dave, you are our resident tool guru, as most people listening to this podcast are aware, and you definitely have no qualms about Definitely no qualms about buying with your own money, pretty much anything, any tool out there that you're even remotely curious about, including this impact wrench, apparently. As so, long as I can still afford my, my pasta and, and tin soup at the end of the week, I'm all good to buy whatever. <laughs> so all of these tools can't always be winners, though. So I'm wondering, what do you do with the duds? There's a drawer of dud tools. Um, it's more a plastic container now. Uh, they, got, they got taken out of the drawer. The drawer was needed. Uh, yeah, they, they're around. I, I keep them. I try not to put things in, in landfill, but, uh, but yeah, there are quite a few, uh, tools on my mind recently that have proven to be duds. Uh, namely, I've now broken three laser-based stem aligning tools. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. They don't, they can't be dropped. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem is, is like the ones I've used, uh, they just drop off. There's like, there's nothing like. Yeah, holding it just, on. Yeah, like they either like sit on the top of the stem, and then the smallest bump sends them flying. Or uh, another one clips to the front of the handlebar, but just doesn't clip, so it just shoots itself off. So hmm. um, anyway, these seem like tools that were designed by engineers, not mechanics. Yeah, 
Yeah, so <laughs> underwhelmed, but uh, hey, there's more laser-based tools to try, so we'll keep going. <laughs> okay, all right, well, good to know. Uh, <laughs> well, we've got a whole bunch of great questions submitted by our members today, so let's go ahead and dive right in. But before we get into the show, a quick note, if you're listening to this right now, that means you are not currently an Escape Collective member, so right when you're starting to get into this week's show... I'm sorry, but we're going to have to cut you off since these shows are only available to, in full to our members. Uh, that membership not only gets you access to all of our podcasts, like this one in Ronan's performance process, where he talks about all sorts of optimizations you can do for both your bike and body to help you go faster, but also all the amazing written content you'll find on escapecollective.com and an invitation to our private Discord channel and a warm virtual hug from that incredibly welcoming and actually quite knowledgeable community that we've built over there. So before you do another thing today, head over to escapecollective.com slash join to sign up, and then you'll never have to hear me pestering you about it ever again. All right, back to the show. All right, first question. This one comes from Brad. Ooh, I, I kind of like this one. What do we think about running road tubeless tires dry, a.k.a. without sealant? Uh, as who, someone who that wants just to had a, this one? As someone that thought to myself, ooh, the sealant in my tires are definitely dry. This is just yesterday. Uh, this is on a gravel bike, though. I'm like, oh, the sealant in my tires are definitely dry. Oh, well, one, one last ride, and then I'll top it up. I ended up riding a flat tire home. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I think uh, one of the biggest advantages of tubeless is the sealant. So uh, I would not recommend running them dry. But yeah, Zach, what, what do you think? I don't understand why you would want to do this. Like, what benefit do you then have of tubeless? I mean, I, I guess this sort of takes us back to the very, very early days of road tubeless when... But you still ran sealant in those. Well, it, not initially, like with, with the original... You didn't, ha you didn't have to, but mm. if you were intelligent, you did. Well, yeah, but, <laughs> but anyway, but back, but back then, those casings were, were designed to be airtight. They had like these thick butyl liners on the inside and stuff like that. So yeah, you didn't have to run sealant. And I guess the re Brad, I'm guessing the reason why you're asking this is maybe you're wondering if you can get by with shaving a few grams without running the sealant? No, I think it's because the sealant, my guess is it's that the sealant is the one maintenance aspect of tubeless. Um, and that's, in my experience, it's the one thing that kind of scares people off from running road tubeless is that they don't want to have to have a schedule of topping up the sealant. Um, but I guess the, the thing to know is that it, it's actually far simpler than you realize. It's as simple as pulling a valve core and squeezing some liquid in through the valve core. So it shouldn't be feared as much as it is. Uh, we had heard about some pro race teams sort of like painting the inside of tire casings with sealant hmm. were they running sealant like kind of like to, to seal up the casing without having to run a ton of extra weight and then they were running foam liners inside of there for uh for run flat protection um do we know if they were actually running additional liquid sealant in there though uh unknown uh i know yeah from what i've seen most most uh world tour teams have enough sealant in their tires to actually seal punctures um i'm not aware of any teams that were were choosing not to have that feature who knows? I mean, it's, it's not impossible. It's hard to say it like a pro race. Like you're not going and taking teams' tires off the rims. <laughs> mm, I think so. I think they would probably frown yeah. on you. Doing and like that. if they're doing something like I don't know, if they think that it's a benefit to have no sealant in the tire for whatever reason, then they're not going to tell you as well because they don't want to give away whatever their secrets are. True. Either way, Brad, uh, I think our consensus here is that it is not a good idea. So for whatever reason you were considering doing it, I guess too probably. most most tires now aren't designed to be ran without sealant yeah like if you were if you were to pump them up like they might seal and inflate initially without sealant but that tire will most likely be flat in about 10 minutes so yeah brad i don't know why you were asking about this but we would recommend not doing it. anyway our next question actually also comes from brad 
Uh, it's another good one, I think. See, uh, Brad wants to know what we think of non-OEM cassettes, or I guess non-mainstream cassettes, uh, such as like the Prestacycle, such as the Prestacycle ones, for instance. Which are Edco for? Yes, correct. Yeah, for those familiar with the Edco company, um, some of them are, are okay. Some of them are terrible. There's usually no good in yeah. terms of shift quality. Yeah, I think I think generally speaking, you will get the benchmark durability from SRAM and Shimano and Campagnolo brand cassettes. I think they have proven themselves time and time again to be superior in that regard. I think you also get better shift quality from those companies by sticking with their own cassettes. Uh, I think the truest of that would be Shimano, where the Shimano shift ramps are, are known to often provide the best shifting. Uh, and I think that's yeah, I think that's going to be a trade-off. So say like I I tried a Garbrook cassette on a, a Shimano Microspline 12-speed mountain bike Garbrook cassette because it's what was available during COVID. Uh, and it worked just fine, but it just didn't shift quite as nicely as the, the Hyperglide Plus cassette from Shimano. Uh, yeah, it's like, usually what, just a little clunkier. Yeah, a little bit clunkier, but it worked fine. Like It found every single gear, every single cog perfectly fine. It never missed a shift. It just wasn't quite as good under power. Uh, and then I had a, a friend using that same cassette who experienced some kind of funky, unexpected wear on that cassette where the cassette actually wore out before the first chain did. You know, there are trade-offs to these cassettes, but I, I think generally speaking, if you're, if you're keen to save some weight, then it, it's worth looking at because that Garbrook cassette was the price of an XT cassette, but the same weight of an XDR. If you're yeah. doing it to save weight, though, definitely pick one that still has steel cogs. Yes. I, mm. I as a former weight weenie, once upon yes. a time, I've been here. ran an all-aluminum cassette yep. because that's, why not? When, yeah, how good is snapping teeth? The, yeah, the first ride, I just, like, snapped a bunch of teeth off, and it yeah. was terrible. And Well, but then it was lighter. It was, it was lighter, but, it, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was awful. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah the I, same experience. I have not ridden uh, the Garbara cassette, but I definitely have ridden a couple of press the cycles under the Edco brand. And yeah, I would agree. They, they were, they're pretty impressively light. Uh, those particular ones are all machined from one big block of, of steel. So they actually seem to be pretty durable. Um, but as Dave already mentioned, the shift quality just definitely wasn't as good as what you would get from a Shimano or a SRAM or Campagnolo. Um, so that's definitely something to think to, to consider. I, I'd actually also been curious to try like one of those ZTTO cassettes from, mm. that you would find on AliExpress. Uh, haven't quite pulled the trigger on that one because the the particular tooth ratios aren't really what I'm looking for. But uh, yeah, overall, I'd, I'd say not quite that you get what you pay for, but there <laughs> there of. are you'd be surprised how much how much engineering is required to smoothly move a chain from sprocket to sprocket, particularly under power. And yeah. these smaller brands that seem to be offering cassettes that are on paper really interesting as far as you know cost and price and stuff like that. I would say even if they have the engineering resources to get those gates and ramps done correctly, uh, if they do do them correctly, they're probably violating patents at that point. So then someone's going to come yeah. right after them. Yeah. And it comes like, yeah, the engineering and then the manufacturing side. So like the, the coatings that SRAM use and, uh, and the, you know, the, the heat treatments that, that Shimano are using and, and probably SRAM too, it, it all adds up into, you know, making a cassette much more durable. So uh, like at the cheaper end of, had a fair bit of experience using like Sunrace and MicroShift cassettes now, um, and they're fine. But again, don't shift as well, and the durability just doesn't seem to be there um, to the same level as as the Shimano SRAM. So, yeah, there is there is a trade off still to to these other alternative options. So, when possible and when stock allows, I I still stick with the the key brands. Hard to go wrong there. 
All right, moving on. Another cassette question here. Um, this one comes from. I'm pretty sure this is this is not an abbreviation for to be confirmed, but the but the initials are TBC. Uh, SRAM is very clear that the Explore cassette or Explore. No, I, I'm pretty sure that was me. I think the name was to be confirmed. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay, all right. <laughs> well, this one comes from an unknown member then. Uh, SRAM is very clear that the Explore rear derailleur is designed for a max cassette size of 1044. Uh, I read somewhere that it can stress the parallel parallelogram bushings or produce e extra stress if you use larger cogs, but they've got over half of their B-screw threads left, and they're wondering how true that limit really is. What do we think? I mean, I've not ever tried putting a larger cassette in an Explorer derailleur. I mean, the Eagle one definitely wouldn't fit. No, no, definitely not. Um, so you'd, then you'd back to an aftermarket cassette that's probably not going to shift well anyways. But I think more than just like, oh, you have some B-tension screw left. It's like that derailleur cage is only designed to be able to handle so much difference from the 10 to the 44. So like maybe it would work with the 46 or something, but potentially then there's not enough for it to be basically not enough chain uh, growth for both extremes is what I would be more concerned than stressing the parallelogram. Yeah. So basically you would potentially have like a saggy chain in the 10 and then depending on how you size your chain, you could potentially just rip the entire end of, rear end of your bike frame off if you shifted into the largest cog and there wasn't enough swing in the cage. The other thing to consider with that B-tension screw is there is variability in where the stop is for that screw on different frames and different hangers and that sort of thing. So, um, I mean, that's why the B-tension screws exist. Because, yeah, and, and that's why they have so much yeah. so much range because there is some variability there uh, there from, from brand to brand. Um, certainly in like among custom builders, depending on on how they've how they've arranged the back ends of those things so um yeah i mean i definitely have seen online that people tend to push the or people have pushed those tooth limits a little bit and oftentimes you can maybe stretch it by like two teeth or something um but even then that's not really a sure thing uh and then you're kind of introducing some other compromises then too so um if you're really looking for a lot more range then i would probably switch to like an eagle setup but if you're maybe looking at I'm not even sure who makes a 1046 cassette, but if you're looking at some sort of 1046 aftermarket cassette, you might be able to get away with it, but I wouldn't, yeah, I yeah. wouldn't say that's a sure thing. Yeah, I mean, Shimano has 1045. That's not a huge difference. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I used to use a lot of, like, expander cassettes for back in, like, 10 and 11 speed days. I haven't played with uh, too good, many. Good old one-up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, my experience there was that, they worked, but they were far more finicky to set up, and often the shifting was compromised through stressing the derailleur beyond its initial design. So, yeah, some people are really happy with it. For me, uh, yeah, I was always bothered by, yeah, just never having wholly perfect shifting from, from having those installed. So, results may vary. All right, moving on. This next question also comes from an unknown Escape Collective member here. They are doing a 170k long Paris-Roubaix Sportif this year. Sweet. They've got plenty of clearance on their specialized Crux with uh, Zip 303 Firecrest wheels, but what tire size should they run? They're specifically wondering about 32 versus 35 mil, uh, and then looking at the pros and cons of being more aero on long road sections um, versus comfort on the cobbles. And what about tire liners? What do we think? I mean, I would say first it depends on what experience you're looking for. Roubaix cobbles are absolutely horrendous. Like, Flander cobbles are fun. You can go ride those on 28s and they're fun. Roubaix is just like absolutely horrendous. So I think if you want to experience it like the pros experience it, then run 30s or something. But mm -hmm. if you want a more pleasant day out, then I would run, yeah, 35s or more. They're just, it's hard to describe how terrible Roubaix cobbles are. I had heard it described 
as basically you flying over a dirt field in a helicopter and dropping bowling balls out of it. And that's basically what the Rube cobbles are like. Kind of, yeah. So, I mean, I would say, like, if you want kind of a racy, like, fast road setup, but still is pleasant to ride-ish, I would think, like, a 34, like, Corsa Control would be pretty good setup. And I would definitely recommend inserts. Um, because like, if you're running them at the pressure that you want to run them, you're going to smash into rocks, mm. not rocks, but the cobbles and you don't want to break a wheel. Like everyone liked to poke fun at Shimano for a while when he broke his wheel, but it wasn't just like he hit one rock and, and it broke. Like you hit one cobble and flat the tire and then you keep riding it and smash it into more cobbles and then your wheel explodes. Um, so I would yeah. definitely run inserts. I would say like the Vittoria ones are a bit undersized, so I don't know that I would run those. Tubo Light makes some, not Tubolito, but Tubo Light. Um, they make some road ones that are a little bit bigger. I would probably run those. And still very light. Yeah, and they're still, yeah, they're like 30 grams or something. It's cheap insurance for sure. Yeah, it's just like a, yeah, it's just, you're going to smash into things, you're, especially if you're doing the Sportiva and there's hundreds of people around you. You're going to pick a bad line and you're going to land in a hole and you don't want to be on the side of the road trying to fix a flat. Probably also worth mentioning that those zips, that's a 25 mil rim so 25 mil internal so i mean a 32 printed tie is probably going to plump up to about a 34 measured yeah it just depends like how much comfort you want versus how much not comfort you want well like, yeah. the other thing too is for sure there is that aero consideration especially if you know as the tire gets so much wider than the rim but yeah as zach mentioned it kind of depends on the experience that you're looking for like if you're looking to absolutely smash your previous time on there or like, you know, finishing the lead group of that, of that Sportif or something, then yeah, I, I would say for sure, Aero should be a pretty big consideration. Um, you know, we always talk about the, the cobbles at Paris-Roubaix, but you know, we don't often talk about the long stretch, stretches of kind of decent paved roads that you deal with otherwise, because it's what, like 80 something percent paved road. Yeah, but like the unpaved is horrific. Yeah. It's really hard. To, like it's, really difficult to describe how terrible they are like i did it on 30s at first it's comical you're just like wow this is absolutely horrendous like why does this bike race exist and then you get to the next sector and you're like oh okay this is really terrible and now my hands are falling apart and like my bike feels sounds like it's just gonna like explode <laughs> and it's just not yeah I, i've said this a bunch like, of if times. you want to do it and make it be pleasant i would run like 38s or 40s but that's not going to be necessarily the fastest overall maybe run a suspension stem I don't know that I'd go that far, but it's just, yeah, they're really, really like just the worst road you could possibly imagine. And there's so many holes, especially on the five-star sectors. They're just like so horrendous, especially if it's wet or anything like that, then it's just going to be even worse. But I would think, yeah, 34, 32, maybe 35, like that ballpark. And depending on how much comfort you want. It sounds like that's where uh, some of the pros are are likely headed. I know that's where some of the, the technical directors are suggesting team's head is that 30 sort of 34 to 35 measured range yeah um, i don't think i don't think for racing you need bigger than yeah. that but like no for racing is what i've heard is that they yeah the the trend like you know that we're now seeing like uae for example are running the full season on 31 measured right. with tires you know in the tour and everything uh but yeah it does sound like they're sort of trending towards that 34 to 35 measured with uh for roubaix um at least some teams are now yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting where the next few years go. I mean, some people on the internet are like, in five years, Roubaix will be one on 45 mil tires. Yeah. And I don't think that's ever going to be the case. Yeah. Um, but like once upon a time, it was like, oh, 27 mil Victoria Pavés. Those mm-hmm. are the tire that you have. And that's <laughs> so like wide. as big as yeah. you could possibly ever need. 
Yeah. And now that I can imagine doing that on those. Right. It's all about that green tread, the yeah. magical green rubber. I mean, then too, like the wheels had more flex in them, which I think had something to do with it as well. But yeah, it sounds like we're leaning toward water would be better for most people. Yeah. Sorry, I warned you that you were going to get cut off, didn't I? Uh, my apologies for the cruelty, but that's kind of how this whole teaser thing works, right? Uh, as a reminder, everything we do at Escape Collective is funded directly by our members, which also means that we basically work for you. And hopefully you can all agree that it makes for a better product in the end. If you want to hear the rest of this episode, head over to escapecollective.com join. You can be back here in literally less than two minutes. So get going. We'll see you back here in a few. 